Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to another week of the College Football Fix podcast from USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Wolken, Paul Meyerberg here as well. Paul, I've got one question for you this week. Are Steve Sarkeesian and his coaching staff at Texas coaching juggernauts? Is that a fact? They're, they've got everyone right where they want them, Dan. Because when you lose to Kansas, you have established a low point that can only – Things can only improve from this point forward. And if you go eight and five this year, which is impossible, but if you go seven and six this year, all of a sudden you have a three-game winning streak. And that's what people are talking about. Not the fact that you gave up 57 points and lost to Kansas. Um, I just want to know, what are they saying on the team bus this week after last week? Are they they just um, like playing – like Andrew Dice Clay, Eddie Murphy raw for like this, the phallus mouth stuff that you could possibly find to motivate a group of 18 to 22 year old kids. Um, rough times for Texas. I would not call them juggernauts, but they are uh, clearly setting themselves up for a great success story of plucky underdogs pulling themselves up from the bootstraps. Well, for people who don't know what we're referring to uh, on Monday, night uh, a video started going around of a question that was posed to steve sarkeesian at his regular monday press conference and it was about a 45 50 second question uh and it just went on and on and it would i don't even know how to describe this question all i know is if i was in the room like at some point around the 20 or 30 second mark i would have got up from my chair and like just gone over and slapped whoever was asking the question because it was the most ridiculous question in the history of college football. Apparently, uh, this was Terry Middleton of Horns Illustrated. I do not know Terry Middleton. I do not know Horns Illustrated as a publication. Can't say I've ever read it. But either that is the most – it was the most homerific, ridiculous, ass-kissing question in the history of questions – or it was a total put-on. I don't know what to make of it, but basically this is what the Steve Sarkeesian debut year at Texas has been reduced to. Losing to Kansas, losing five in a row for the first time in like 50-something years, 60-something years, and getting asked the dumbest question in the history of sports press conferences. Good job. Yeah, good questions last eight seconds or less, Dan, in my opinion. Um it reminds me of one of the great moments for me of SEC Media Days history. That's when Les Miles was still at LSU and he's up at the podium and a reporter from a major, major national outlet uh, is given the microphone and asks a, a very long, very interesting, very detailed, very intricate question um, that lasted about a minute. Les Miles waits about two beats and goes, you know, I get that all the time. 
um, and then didn't answer the question. Um, this is where we are for Texas. I mean, and you're right. I mean, we're at a point where they've lost five in a row for the first time since 1956. They've lost to Kansas for the second time in, I think, five years. Um, and we are, um, if you're someone who supported Sarkeesian and thought it was a good hire, you're beginning to question what you saw on that in the first place. Not to say that the, the story isn't written on his tenure, but these are the sort of moments, and we've seen it like in the modern history of college coaching and the modern history of hiring and firing. These are the moments and these are the losing streaks that will eventually define your tenure. Um, and the chances are, as you've seen throughout the years, like this probably is not going to work. Let's just be honest. They've lost five in a row. They lost to Kansas. This is probably not going to work like in the big picture, like the way Texas envisioned it. It's probably just not going to work. Let's just be honest um, because the time, the odds and the chances and the opportunities and the, and the moments in the power five coaching recent history where guys have had this sort of start and then rebounded and had great success I challenge you to find one guy who's done that. Most of the time, you know by year two which direction it's heading. So you give a pass for year one, but by year two, you better start making some moves. And we've seen already a coach get fired before the end of his second year. That was Jimmy Lake at Washington, happened on Sunday, not a surprise, word was going around all weekend, he was suspended, and he was likely not going to coach another game at Washington, this happens in fact to, to be the case, he's getting a $10 million going away present, $10 million, $10 million to coach 13 games, he coached 13 games at Washington, zero Apple Cups, never faced Washington State, now some of that, a lot of it was due to covid they, they barely played at all last year. But basically things were so bad that Washington is biting the bullet, $10 million, 13 games, starting over. It's crazy out there right now. $10 million, Dan. $10 million. Because you're so bad at your job that they were so worried that you were going to run this program off of cliff and into the bottom of the Pacific that they had to give you $10 million bucks. Please go away. Don't, don't ever come back. Don't ever coach these football players again. Go away. Here's $10 million to never set foot inside this office again. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, that's crazy. I don't know what else to say. $10 million to never coach again. Um, I'm sorry. I don't have anything more to say. I'm, I'm being serious. He got $10 million for coaching 13 games. And he won seven, six? Seven was, and six was his seven record. Seven and six. Wow. Seven and six. Ten million dollars. Dan, what would you do on the side if someone gave you ten million dollars today and you came out with five point six million bucks? What are you doing with that money? What's the what are you doing? Um, I'm probably buying, you know, like a beach condo somewhere in there. Um, maybe uh building a tennis court, private tennis court, something like that. <laughs> So boring. Oh my god, Dan. Come on. So boring. What, You're what do you want me to do? Private tennis court? Come on. What do you want me to you do? What do you want? That. What do you want You're... me to do with five million dollars? You can't buy an airplane with five million dollars. Oh, yeah, you, like... you could buy a used jet for like two million bucks. A used jet. If you want to buy a used jet. You know what One I'm that's doing? not gonna crash? I can't promise you it's not gonna crash. It could crash. It's been used. I'm buying a helicopter. And um yeah, I, I was with you on the first part. I'm buying beachfront property. Um, in a in a very warm weather climate, uh, non extradition. I don't know why. I've always wanted to do that. 
and then I'm going to live there. That's it. Yeah, I, I recommend Uruguay. Yeah, I guess. Good, Seems good, very far. good, very good beachfront uh, property. Good, good value. Good bang for your buck. Well, well, we know where to look for Jimmy Lake. Took us ten million dollars yeah. and run. Well, let me ask you this: so we had two firings this week, and coaches making out with multiple millions of dollars. One is Jimmy Lake at Washington. The other is Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. As as many of the uh, internet commentators uh, have have discovered. Wasn't that hard to find? I was very big on the Justin Fuente hire at Virginia Tech when it happened. I thought he was going to win ACC titles there. I thought it was a great fit. It just did not work. For whatever reason, there's a lot of different factors that go into all these situations and why they work or don't work. But let's spin it forward for a second. Which of those two do you think is the better job? Washington's the better job. Uh, really? Well, yeah, okay. I do. I think, and look, like, I think 25 years ago, even when Beamer was starting to get things cooking there, Washington was the way better job, way better job. Uh, I still think it's the better job, but I think it's closer. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Pac-12 is a disgrace. Um, and then if you're a top-tier coach, why are you choosing the Pac-12 even over the ACC? I'm not sure if you would. Um, but Washington has the infrastructure, um, the support, and the expectations to be the number one program in the Pac-12, which is what they were for, what, two, three years under Peterson. So it's doable, doable in very recent times. So I think UW's a better job, but Virginia, Virginia Tech's a good job. It's a solid job. It's a top-half job in the ACC with room to spare. Um, I just don't think that if you have both those jobs open going for the same caliber of coach, I think UW is more likely to get that that you know 1A, 1B coach than Virginia Tech is. Yeah, it's two jobs that are very, very different. And I, I would say in terms of history, they're probably not that different. They've both had really good runs over the years. Um, both have really good home field advantage. You know, they have um, a, week, a Thursday night game in Blacksburg, just incredibly electric, very hard place to play. You know, Seattle, you go out there when they fill that place up, it's incredibly you know, incredibly tough to play there. Um, but you're also talking about at Washington, a school that's in the middle of a pretty big city, uh, one of, you know, sort of the growing dynamic areas of the country, a place where you should be able to recruit the best players locally. You should be able to go into California and compete for players. You could even maybe go into to Texas, middle of the country. I think Virginia Tech is is harder in the sense that, I mean, you've been to Blacksburg. I've been to Blacksburg. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like, you have to drive a good three, four hours from just about anywhere to get to Blacksburg. It's up in the mountains. It's it's remote. It's Appalachia. And for years and years and years under Frank Beamer, the reason they were so good is he was able to get guys from that, you know, that Norfolk, Hampton Roads area in the eastern part of the state i guess tidewater is what virginia they call beach. the region yeah. yeah virginia beach that region that's produced over the years so many great athletes in all all of our sports um, obviously that's where mike vick came from in that area and they made a living off recruiting those guys and getting those guys to come all the way across the state to blacksburg bypassing 
other programs that are frankly closer to, to their homes, including Virginia, including Maryland. And Justin Fuente just was not able to do that. And maybe, you know, maybe you can't do it if you're not Frank Beamer. But whoever gets that job, that is priority number one. Job number one is to get that going again, get that pipeline working. Because if you don't have guys coming from that part of the state to Blacksburg, I don't know what you have at Virginia Tech. Yeah, I don't know where your recruiting base is, if not there. And I think, like you said, that's that's probably because the only successful Virginia Tech we've known in our lifetimes was the Virginia Tech that excelled there under Beamer. Um, I'm always hesitant to say, hey, hire a guy who's got those connections there and can recruit that area. But I mean, I think it's mandatory. I think you need to get someone in there who has at least some experience recruiting that area or at least has a vision for the kind of staff that he can put together that will be able to recruit that region. Um, yeah, Virginia Tech wants to get back to where they were or at least get back to the point where they're competing seriously for the ACC every single year. They've got to get, you know, they got to get half the top 10 players in state and they've got to get half the top players in that region. Um, I think it might be a little bit overly simplistic to say that's the only reason Fuente failed. I think he failed to develop quarterbacks, which is supposed to be his his bread and butter. The offense was stale and predictable. You're seeing Hendon Hooker, who he botched in terms of that relationship last year, excel for Tennessee under a coach who really knows how to work QBs and Josh Eichel. So there's a lot of things I think need to get fixed at Virginia Tech. Not a conversation or a question, I think, for right now, but I think broader. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a portion of that fan base that is asking um, – if what Beamer did is ever repeatable or if it was a once in a lifetime, once in a, in a century kind of run from a magical coach in a magical period. Um, so I don't know if that's ever something they can replicate, but um, the expectations are the next guy is going to get it done. I'm not sure if that next guy, who that next guy is going to be, but um, expectations will be slightly lower. I think for him than they were for Fuente, always better to replace the guy who replaces the guy. Yeah. I mean, look, we all knew when Frank Beamer retired that replacing a legend was going to be difficult. Although Beamer's last few years had been so kind of mediocre that, that maybe I thought, and a lot of people thought, Hey, listen, you know, there might be a couple years here where the recruiting was down, the roster's not where it should be, but Fuente will get it back up and, and going again. Yeah. The, First year, first two years, uh, won 10 games, nine games, made an ACC title appearance, um, thought it was going well, and it just never never worked. It, you know, had guys transfer out. You, you look at uh, a situation like Hendon Hooker playing pretty well for Tennessee, never really played that well for Virginia Tech. So the, the bottom line, though, is that that's a place that cares about winning football. That, that's a place that – because of what Beamer did and the tradition that they established and the home field advantage and all that stuff, like you've got to be good there or else they are going to fire you. And, you know, I don't know if that guy is Billy Napier. You know, I don't know who they're going to target, but one thing about Whit Babcock is an athletic director is he usually has got a plan. He's usually got, you know, an idea of what he wants, who he can get, and and he's going to work quietly behind the scenes to to try to get that done. Um, you know, I don't think it's totally clear yet who that's that's going to be. Uh, hey, it might, it might be Dave Clawson, you know, within the conference. Dave Clawson has ties in the state of Virginia as somebody who may be able to recruit kind of the way Beamer recruited. So 
I think there's a lot of possibilities. I think they'll pay well. I don't think anyone looks at that division and says, boy, that's impossible. Virginia Tech should be one of the best jobs in that division. So I I, I think it's going to be one of the more fascinating hires of, of the whole thing. But, you know, the number of jobs open right now in FBS, I think it's 12. Mm-hmm. We're going to have more. I mean, this is going to be the the craziest carousel I can remember, not not necessarily because of the number of jobs open, but because of the number of jobs open versus the actual number of candidates to fill those jobs. There's just not a ton of like knockout candidates. Yeah, it's going to be a wacky cycle. Um, I think I've said this a few times so far this year. You get a chance to hire Dave Clawson, I think you probably go ahead and do it. Um, trying to get him out of Wake might be easier said than done. But, yeah, he coached at Richmond, knows the area, would be a fantastic hire. One guy for Tech Tan, uh, real quick, someone mentioned this. It might have been Chris Benini of The Athletics said, uh, Blake Anderson. I think that's a great fit. Issue for Blake Anderson is three jobs in three years. might be tough to sell that. But he coached in the ACC at North Carolina, had some really good offenses. Um, has turned things around real quick at Utah State, had extended uh, prolonged success at Arkansas State, um, seems to check the boxes. So keep that in mind for Virginia Tech. Um, but, yeah, Dan, I don't – Virginia Tech is one of those jobs, right? Like even right now, where is it ranked on the power – you know, the totem pole of open jobs? Fifth? Fourth? I mean, well, it's USC, Well, cer- certainly LSU, behind USC and LSU, yeah. And we're saying, I think, behind Washington. Um, is it behind TCU? There the are certainly that, some people who yeah. would say TCU is a better place to be because you're in Texas and you're going to be in a conference uh, where you're you're probably, you know, one of the top three jobs. Yeah, it's a better roster right now as well, I think. But anyway, fourth or fifth, um, like you said, Dan, I think the question is for Tech, like you, you kind of get in front of line a little bit by two weeks. Um, but what what Where is this job going to slot on December 1st? Or not December 1st, December 6th. December 7th, like, could it be 8th, 9th, 10th? So that's an issue for these jobs, right? Like, you want to get in front of the line, but if you don't take advantage of this window of time, all of a sudden your, your pool of candidates goes from uh, mediocre to a lot worse. And then you're thinking, man, we did want to get rid of Justin Fuente, but do we really want to hire the, the, um, the quarterback's coach at Western Kentucky to fill his spot? No to I don't think they got to go that far down. But... I don't know who that is. but it could be. I'm sure it's a great coach. Hey, Bailey's app has got five million yards. So if you can hire the quarterback coach at Western Kentucky, then you should go ahead and do that. You know who uh, is out there hustling to get involved in some of these jobs is uh, Bobby Petrino. Mm. No. <laughs> no? Just a flat no? No. Hey, uh... I've been meaning to ask you about this, and the only reason that it popped back into my head because, as I said, the words Arkansas State. Let's just hop directly off topic and talk about Butch Jones at Arkansas State. They're yeah. two and eight. They lost like eight straight games. They're trash, and they haven't been this bad, even though they took a little bit of a step back last year since pre Gus Malzahn. That was late two thousands, I think, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Yeah, let me say this, um, and I'm not like totally clued in on everything that's going on with Arkansas State or why it is as bad as it is right now. But a few weeks ago, somebody who's very smart about all things coaching uh, told me, hey, keep an eye on that situation 
because it is an abject disaster. It's not going well. Butch is out of his mind. He's, you know, ranting and raving and it's it's not good. So um, if Butch Jones is one and done in Jonesboro, like that would not be the most shocking thing mm. to me. But do they have the money and all that stuff? I, I don't know. Yeah, it, I, it it seems pretty, pretty bad. I'm so glad I brought him up. That was just off the top of my head. Not This was not pre-staged or pre-arranged. I'm so glad I brought up Butch Jones. I'm just struck by how bad things have gotten. If we know Butch, there's a chance that he has a low-level intern listening to every podcast about football out there and then transcribing the portions about Butch Jones, printing that out, and then handing it to Butch in a manila folder. This oh, is what people said about you this week. Listen, you're, you're not exaggerating. I, l- talk to anyone at Tennessee back when Butch Jones was the coach there. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who was literally addicted to reading everything that was written about him. Could not live, could not stand to not know what was being said all of the time. Every day, articles printed out on his desk waiting for him to peruse. Uh, that is not a good way to coach football, especially at a place like Tennessee where they have a lot of actual media that still covers the team. Like it's not just one or two beat reporters. They've got a ton of folks mm-hmm. who, who follow that team every single day and write about that team every single day. Yeah. Butch is, um, Butch has got the rabbit ears and I don't think he'll ever change. Well, Bad news in Jonesboro. I'm glad I brought that up. Sorry for the digression, but I think people will find that very interesting. Brick by brick. Brick by brick. Trash can by trash can. Brick by brick. I swear to God. I mean, I remember watching. They were, it was, they were playing Georgia Tech in Atlanta at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We're sitting there. Georgia Tech actually should have won that game. It was a miracle Tennessee won that game. It was the season opener. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking, and there's a trash can on the sideline. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's got the checkerboard logo. I mean, like, you know, this was right when the Miami uh, turnover chain was new, brand new, and everyone was trying to copy that, but in their own little spin, what they were going to do when their defense got a turnover. And, you know, we saw several iterations of this. I mean, you know, Memphis had a wrestling outfit or something like that. I mean, you've seen belts, you've seen all kinds of different gimmicks that, yeah, th- there's a slot machine now at UNLV. <laughs> they brought a trash can to the silent. What the hell is that? He had all, he could have picked all of the tokens, all of the possible emojis to represent his program, and he picked the trash can, and it ended up being quite apropos. I swear to God, the the way some of these coaches' minds work, it it, it blows my mind. And I don't want to like get on Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell's a great coach, really good dude. Like he's 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 terrific. I'd want him coaching my football program. But you know, he was asked yesterday about because they're what are they six and four? I think they're six, six and, four. and four. Yeah, and he was right. asked about what are you disappointed in your season, right? It was that was the gist of it was, you know, because they have not it it was framed as you have not you're not going to reach your goals of winning the Big 12. or And he's like, I didn't say that. I I never said anything about winning the Big 12. I just want us to be the best version of Iowa State that we can be. What, dude, 
I'll say this for Campbell. Um, This is what, like, so there was a period of time. I think it began probably his his last year at Vanderbilt up through his first couple years at Penn State, where I would go to certain places. And as you know, and as some people listening know, like you sit with a coach and at the end, you might be like, hey, is anything that I can answer for you or blah, blah, blah. I would get a lot of questions about James Franklin saying, hey, is he for real? Like, is this, is that, is shtick? My answer was always, it's not a shtick if it's like that all the time. Right, Frank, right. He's, he's just consistent. It's him all the time. Campbell's been that way. Like, it's oh. almost like a verbatim from the start. I have a really hard time. It's an easy quote to pick on, but he's been saying that, like, since day one. And I think he truly believes it, and I give him credit for that. Like, I think they really built the program on the idea of let's be the best Iowa State we can be because Iowa State has never been very good. Nonetheless, Dan, like, it's a very fair question because he can hold his team to that standard, and that's great, and I respect him for it, for his consistency. But still, like, it's a disappointing season. Like, this was a really good team built really well that I thought was going to play for a Big 12 and maybe get into a New Year's Six. To be 6-4 and four at this point is disappointing. I mean, you can't phrase it any other way from the outside of these. I totally understand from a coach's point of view and mentality that you're looking at process over results a lot of times, right? You're, you're looking at, you know, are, are the players getting the most out of themselves? Are you maximizing what you have? Are you getting better every day? Like all that stuff and totally makes sense, right? But you do have to, at some point, recognize the bottom line. You have to recognize what your record is and not just what it was supposed to be because that can get all haywire based on things that we don't know about when we make these predictions. But and there is no world in which we could have been sitting here and said six and four is a good outcome for Iowa State this year. Like, that's just not possible. No. So, but my point is, like, if you're the coach – like what in your brain is sort of making you say that publicly? No one's buying it. You know what I mean? Like, are these guys in such a bubble of their own world that like, they don't really actually like there's the balance between the Butch Jones. I'm going to listen to what everybody says all the time and react to it and go crazy and drive myself nuts because I'm being criticized versus, Hey, you know, I have no awareness of what the outside world is saying about my team and you're just losing the plot. So, you know, who's got the right balance of that in coaching? I don't really know. But, boy, those seem like two extremes that <laughs> do not uh, do not engender a lot of goodwill among frustrated fan bases. Yeah, you know, and I understand the perspective of a fan who's pissed at that because I would want Matt Campbell to talk to his team about, hey, we should win the Big 12. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's ridiculous to have that conversation. It might have been ridiculous four years ago to talk about it. Hey, we want to win the Big 12. But this is a team that had that capability. So maybe expectations aren't the worst thing. hate to say Nick Saban's the guy who does it better than everyone else in every single thing, though that might be true. But Saban walks that line. He very clearly writes out expectations for his team. I don't think it's about wins or losses, but it's I mean, not about, hey, we need to go 14-0 or 13-1, but... They're very clear expectations for his team. And at the same time, he, as we know, talks about rat poison and making sure that you don't pay attention to outside noise. So he kind of threads the needle a little bit. If I was Matt Campbell or if I was an Iowa State fan and Campbell said in August, hey, we want to go 10-2 and two and win the Big 12, um, and they're sitting at 6-4, and four, he said that we're disappointed. I think I'd feel a little bit better about, you know, 
the program. But again, how could you feel bad about where things are for Iowa State? No, you know what I mean. Like it's it's fine. Like it's all totally fine. But like you know, just acknowledge reality. And this is what got Dan Mullen in trouble again last weekend. I mean, that game against Sanford was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. They're losing to Sanford for a good stretch of that game, and they're giving up a ton of points. They're not playing hard. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not like Sanford is some good FCS team. They're a pretty bad FCS team, to be honest. And it took you know a while for Florida to put them away, and they really couldn't stop them whatsoever. And Mullen, after the game, is talking about it's disrespectful to say it's a disappointing win. There's no such thing as disappointing wins. I mean, again, another sort of comment that just does not reflect reality. And I'm not going to get on the players for being happy about winning a football game, but there is something about setting the tone that just seems off. Yeah, I guess disappointing win in Dan's defense is like a bit of an oxymoron. But you gave up 52 points to Sanford. You gave up 42 points in the first half. That's the most in program history. Um, I don't really know how you could sit there and, and have and chuckle and dance in the locker room. I mean, I know how you can because you did it, and he's a great dancer. But I don't know, um, like, understanding the room, right? Understanding where things are for your program and the ex- and like the eyeballs on you right now. Um, you don't want to take that moment away from the guys because they only get 12 or 13 games in a year or 60 in a career at most. But still, like, it doesn't help the perspective of a program that doesn't really know what's going on right now when you see that response. Let me just go back to one thing you just sort of said casually in, pa- in passing. Dan Mullen's a great dancer. You know what? Um, if you're going to dance in a, in a, in a public-ish setting um, and you're going to put your heart and soul into it, and you know that some guy, some player, some walk-on third-string punter is going to put you on whatever social media platform the kids are on. Now, maybe you're on TikTok and you've started a trend. I think you're a great dancer because you put your heart and your soul into it. And that's what dance is all about. That's what art is all about, is putting your heart and your soul into it. Well, maybe he'll be on Dancing with the Stars next year. He probably will have plenty he of time for that time. sort of thing. Yeah, hey, so... Um, Let's just ask you, Dan, as the as the local expert. Um, Twelve openings. Who is the uh, who is the most likely Power Five coach to get it next? I'm not going to count someone like Cutcliffe because uh, he could obviously retire, although he's not going to get fired. But who's the guy who you think is next to be um, sent packing? If you had to, if you had to guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you could maybe uh, say Herm Edwards. You know, uh, at Arizona State, I, I think just their their issues with the NCAA are, are pretty well documented, and they're pretty. You know, they're seven and three, but it's not like been some awesome run for Arizona State this year. So I think they, you know, they're they're probably in that mix somewhere. Um, I don't. I don't think uh, there's going to be any more changes or firings. I should say in the uh, SEC this year. I don't see anything in the Big Ten because you know Nebraska's basically committed to bringing Scott Frost back. Indiana's not going to make a change. Maryland's not going to make a change. Um. 
you know, maybe Syracuse, although they're five and five, like I don't think they're totally just rushing to get out of Dino Babers right now. Um, you know, and obviously the Miami thing. I, I, I guess, I guess probably Manny Diaz is probably the one that that I should have started with. They fired their athletic director this week, Blake James, and like I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of mystery about why you do that. You fire the athletic director because you're going to fire the football coach, and you don't want the guy who made the bad hire to make another one. And so, yeah, if I'm Manny Diaz right now, I probably feel like it's coming to an end. Hey, let's talk about a hire that happened since we last spoke. Let's talk about Jim Mora to UConn. I have to Yo, tell my you, God. I have to tell you, this is the truth. This is not a joke. This is the truth. When I saw that hire pop up and I saw Jim L. Mora, I legitimately had to Google if you were talking about senior or junior. I, legit, <laughs> I legitimately did not know. I thought UConn might have hired Jim Mora Sr. Playoffs, Jim Mora Sr. I really thought that might be the case. And you know what? I would have understood that more than hiring the junior. Truthfully. Truthfully. Hiring Jim Mora Jr. to coach at UConn only makes sense to me in that he has coached football before. In no other way, shape, or form does that make sense to me at all. And here's my theory, Dan. So Jim Moore has been working for ESPN. I truly yeah. believe that he pulled he out. He wasn't of good Bristol. at that either. No, he truly believed that he pulled out of the Bristol campus, took a left turn. There was like a Cumberland Farms about a tenth of a mile down the street. He went in there to get a coffee and ran into UConn's president, who happened to be in the same coffee shop. And that's how this all came together, because I don't know what in the world is going on. I can't understand it, and I can't even come close to explaining it. Why this happened? You, you know, right after that happened, uh, there was an administrator who who texted me, and I thought made a very good point. Like that's the kind of hire that if you are a minority coach and you're looking for an opportunity, you know, and you're you're every year we sit here and talk about how there's not enough minority coaches being hired, and the numbers are completely disproportionate, and why are some of these guys not getting shots and you know a warmed over jello mold like Jim Mora gets another opportunity it would infuriate you right yeah no I agree this is a job in my mind if I'm the AD or and I'm and I'm in charge of hiring this is a 35 and under job potentially 40 and under easily kind of job fiery recruiter um, doesn't he can learn on the job, but you know, give me, give me the John Gruden in a dark, out at dark kind of guy. Um, I don't think Jim Moore is that sort of person for this show. Well, now the other end of that argument would be: isn't that what UMass just tried to do with Walt Bell, and it didn't work out? I feel like UMass was on Twitter too much with Walt Bell. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Walt Bell's the kind of guy, along with uh, another, another. I don't want to name names, but there's there are other young offensive coordinators who are also plugged on Twitter by blue checkmark yeah. people who we like and who I consider to be uh, uh, colleagues who I'm friendly with, um, who have gotten jobs and have failed as well. Walt Bell was a victim. UMass was a victim of the uh, of being on Twitter.com too much because that didn't make any sense in the beginning. But I understand your point. The point is like. You roll a dice with a guy who doesn't have that, you know, track record or the experience at a place like UConn or UMass, you get eaten alive. And I get that. 
you know, and obviously I'm not saying just go get the only under 40 guy you can get. That just would have been where I centered my search. I would not have hired a guy who has been out of the game for years, has limited college experience anyway. And, and to be quite honest, um, never struck me or the people who I have discussed with as the guy who was the most invested during his time at UCLA and making the Bruins into a national power. So yeah. I would have gone in a different direction. Let's go back to something I wanted to mention. We had kind of got sidetracked by this coaching conversation, but I, as we were talking about the Iowa State thing and how we kind of expected to be sitting here talking about them contending for the Big 12 title and they're out of it completely. I mean, who would have ever thought that we'd be sitting here with two games left in the season and the favorite, the runaway favorite to win the Big 12 would be Oklahoma State. I mean, and we have just not said a word about them. Honestly, no one's talked about them mm-hmm. all year long. And here they are. They're 9-1. and one. They've got Bedlam at home. They're almost certainly going to be in the Big 12 championship game. They're going to be favored over Oklahoma. They seem like a better team than Oklahoma. Now, you know, Mike Gundy has had famously awful uh, time in that series. I'm trying to... I'm, I'm looking up on the fly here the l- number of times that, that Gundy has won. I mean, basically, since 2003, Oklahoma's won every single game except for two. 2011, Gundy won, and 2014 in overtime. Is Oklahoma State going to be in the playoff? I mean, I'm going to say no. Like, if we got to give a yes or no answer, I'm going to say no because I don't think they're going to get there. But still, like, this is a bit of a reinvention of the program. Um, and a, a bit, a bit, like a total reinvention. Yeah, and it's not the first time he's done this, to his credit. And look, we like, not you and I, but just in general, there's a lot of uh, like kind of piling on Gundy, some of it justified for his stuff that has happened off the field. But there's also at the same time been like at no point at all in these last 15, 18 years has there been some sort of take a step back and like really take stock of what he's achieved at his alma mater. Um, and to me, I, I hope that maybe this year causes that at least to focus on the on-field stuff because they are defense-focused, they're running game-focused, uh, their passing game is not good. They don't have those guys on the outside who strike fear into defenses. They're getting it done real old-school meat and potatoes. Um, so a credit to them. I just don't know if they have the offense to run the gauntlet here and to beat, let's say, OU twice in a row. I don't know if they have that in them. It may not be OU twice in a row. It might be OU than Baylor, but... Yeah, um, I think it would – if they beat Oklahoma, it'll probably be Baylor. In the depending, yeah, depending on the Kansas State game. Um, so, you know, credit to Gundy. Can we say that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I've always said Mike Gundy's one of the better coaches in college football. I mean, he's a strange guy, and he shoots from the hip in ways that make him sound uh, really dumb from time mm-hmm. to time because he just frankly doesn't have the facts and doesn't know what he's talking about. But whatever, like he's the king of Stillwater and, you know, he, he gets away with it. It's fine. And yeah, I think sort of the dirty little secret behind Oklahoma State is, you know, without T. Boone Pickens, I mean, that program is not much. Uh, it's it's in a tough you know location geographically historically Oklahoma sucks up all the oxygen what do they have left over I mean they got to really go grind to find dudes in Texas and junior colleges and mm-hmm. 
wherever they can find them. It's it's not easy. You know, they they don't sell out a ton in in a what's their stadium fifty thousand something like that. It's you know, so it, it's it's not Oklahoma as a program, and yet you know they, they've been able to be really good and every now and then have a team that that is tremendous. I mean, I, I still contend that in 2011, they probably should have played for a national title, you know, and frankly, probably would have won it that year. You know, yeah, it would have been a hell of a game. You know, the, the BCS put Alabama in and gave Alabama a second chance to beat LSU, who they had already lost to, and Alabama took advantage and, and, and dominated that game. You know, Oklahoma State lost one game, and it was right after, you know, a plane crash – and emotionally, and there was just a lot going on, and not you know it was it was an excuse. I mean, they had an excuse for that loss. Even so, they had a great argument for number two. If they get in that game, maybe they beat LSU, and, and, and Gundy's got a national title there. Um, instead of saying, "Are they going to get into the playoff?" I think it's, "Are they going to be twelve and one?" And if they are, then I think they got a good chance. Yeah, I think so too. At twelve and one, I think you have an argument, no doubt about it. Um, <clears throat> um, lost my train of thought. Yeah, I think at twelve and one, you've got to you got to take them seriously. Certainly, that we assume that Oregon and, and maybe Cincinnati will slip up. They're going to be right there waiting. So, um, Oklahoma State does have the nicest press box bathroom in the country. It's like a Ritz Carlton bathroom, like Ritz Carlton lobby bathroom. It's fantastic. It's just what would you? I mean, is there? I can't say I've ever raided bathrooms. Well, I'll tell you what's the worst. Penn tell State. me. Penn State is the worst. Okay. Penn State is the worst. Yeah, it's very small. It's an airplane bathroom, Penn State. Very close. If you had – okay, I'm, I'm just going to stop. Um, but, yeah, Oklahoma State's fantastic. They've got, like, a quadruple vanity situation. And they might have those uh, uh, combs and the blue stuff in the barbicide. No joke. They have mints. Um, gum. There's no one waiting at the door with a towel on their arm. But why are really you taking not. a mint out of the bathroom? Why are you taking a mint? This is, are, I'm, what, taking are a mint. A, I'm taking a mint out of that bathroom. I'm taking a mint off the floor in that bathroom. That bathroom is fantastic. And I think it's because it's the official bathroom for, for T. Boom back in the day. It was a bathroom that he used because that suite was right next to the press box. There are, only two pla- there are only two places anymore in the world where it's acceptable to take a mint out of a bathroom. One is a strip club, oh, no. and two is like one Your of those like, and no, and two is like like a fancy steakhouse where the upholstery has not been updated since 1987. Those yes. are the only two places where you can take mints out of a bathroom. I would hold bathroom trips for days if I knew I was going to Stillwater for a game. I would just wait. I would go there. I get there an hour early for the game and just take my time. It was a fantastic experience, and I suggest to anyone. That you get into journalism, um, begin covering college football, <laughs> rise to a level where you will be sent to those games at a publication that will spend money on travel just to use that bet. I will say I do not remember what it was like the last time I covered a game at Oklahoma State, which was Bedlam, I don't know, five years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. I have zero recollection of, of the bathroom, so uh, I'll take your word for it. Let's move on to this week's schedule. Michigan State at Ohio State. We've been waiting for this one. Yeah, Ohio State is – I'm, I'm going to double-check this right now. I believe it was – I want to say it was 18 
And now, according to the odds on ESPN, they are 19-point favorites against Michigan State. a lot of points. Yeah, I don't take that as the ultimate sign of disrespect against Michigan State like maybe they are. I just think it's a little bit off because of what we've seen from Michigan State all season. This is a four-quarter team. Uh, I think even if they go down 21-0 or 21-7 in the second quarter, they will find a way to climb back in. They have the ability to run the ball in Ohio State and at least try to keep off Ohio State's offense off the field. I do not think they're going to win. I just am struck by the fact that it's 19 points. It seems a little bit high. Well, or maybe it's Vegas trying to tempt you to take Michigan State and Ohio State ends up winning by 30. Hmm. That often happens in these situations. Mm Mm-hmm. That's why I don't. That's why I don't gamble. Oh Any God, clue. yeah. Listen, um, I think Ohio State is the one team in the country that I would give a decent shot of beating Georgia, mm-hmm. right? But I also think that, based on what I've seen from them as the season's gone along, they could absolutely lose a game like this. It's hard to explain. But I think they could lose a game like this. I, I, I think they could get out-toughed by, by Michigan State. I agree. And I think it's because we've seen both ends of the spectrum from Ohio State this season. And we've seen them as bad as they're going to get, I think, in September. We've also seen them red hot the first 20, 25 minutes against Purdue. So, yeah, I don't really know what to expect. I think I expect them to play at the level like they played against Purdue. I think that this is a point of, of like a tipping point, turning point of the season for the, for the Buckeyes. But, yeah, I mean, I just think I've learned the hard way that we're not going to count out Michigan State against almost any opponent, certainly in November in Big Ten play, uh, the way that Tucker has that program running and, and the way that he's instilled a certain brand of toughness with them. Um, not surprised me at all if they won. I'm with you. But I'm picking Ohio State. Yeah, I'm picking Ohio State too. Another huge playoff implications game will be Saturday night, ABC primetime, Oregon at Utah. Utah's a favorite in this game by a field goal. And, you know, we've talked about Oregon all year long in terms of they just kind of don't do it for us. And I think we both feel the same way about that. Is this where they're going to get caught? I think it is, Dan. And if not to Saturday, it'll be by the same Utah team in December. I just don't have any faith in Oregon to run the table. Um I feel like I just am really cruel to Oregon on a weekly basis. But the truth is, it's Saturday night, Sunday morning. We're getting close to 2 a.m. on the East Coast. And they're still, like, kind of in a game with Washington State. Yeah, I know. And you can't go to bed. And not that I'm going to, like, I necessarily want to go to bed at 1 o'clock on a Saturday. That's not what my body clock is telling me. But I don't want to be up, like, focused hardcore on a Pac-12 game with the number three team in the country against Washington State with an interim coach. So don't just – I just want them to lose at this point. I really do. I'm not rooting against anyone or rooting for anyone. I kind of just want Oregon to just move away. Get out of the picture. Step aside. Nothing to see here. Just move along. And let's get serious about this because I don't know if Oregon is really going to survive this. Yeah, it's hard to know. I, I just don't – I don't think their quarterback plays good enough. It's been okay. You know, they, they obviously have one of the biggest defensive difference makers in the last several years of college football with Thibodeau. I mean, he's just – he's a wrecking ball. But I do think this is like a great moment or could be a great moment 
that showcases, and I mean, God, I I hate using the cliche about culture, right? But when you talk about Utah and why they're good, they know what they are. They recruit to an identity. They coach to an identity. They execute to an identity. And it's always effective. And it's always the same. And they just get it done. And I just don't have those same sort of vibes about Oregon. And that's why I'm going to pick Utah. Yeah. I pick Utah as well. I like the way you describe that program at large. They don't sacrifice their ideals for anybody. Like Utah, won't, they'll, they'll lose some games. They're not going to go 14 sure. But they're not going to kneel to anybody. You know what I mean? They're not going to sacrifice who they are. So I have a lot of respect for that program. Um, this specific Utah team is is good. This is not the best team that Woodingham has had. I think they've done a nice job at quarterback. I think Rising has done well. Um, but, I, yeah, like you said, I, I just think when it comes down to a Saturday late afternoon, early evening kick under the lights in a really rough environment for a visiting team, at altitude, uh, right. all that stuff. Oregon's tendency to drag things out, even if they have the, the schematic or the personnel advantage. Um, if this is going to be a game that goes until the last five minutes of the fourth quarter, then how can you not pick Utah? So, yeah, I feel I don't feel confident in Utah. I just feel very comfortable thinking that they're going to win this game. All right, so Alabama's got Arkansas at home. Is this going to be another one of those games that Alabama – you know, I, I think when you sort of distill their issues down to the core, part of it is they, they can't protect very well and they can't run the football very well. Offensive line, it's just not up to the standard. And when that's your big weakness, I do think a team like Arkansas and the energy they're going to bring to that game, I think it's going to I think it's going to be a fourth quarter type game, even though Alabama is a 20, 20 and a half point favorite. I, I think this could be a four quarter game. Interesting. I mean, certainly being a four quarter game would go against the like recent and not so recent history of this series. I mean, yeah, I think Arkansas's but, last one was 07, but yeah, I mean, Arkansas. What, is, can, what does 15 years ago have to do with anything? No, I mean, not this is a all. different program. I totally agree with you. I just think that if you look back at, at, Recently, even last year's team had a hard time with Alabama. Everyone does. I'm saying that I think Arkansas has the uh, – if they can, like you said, get after Young, put him in situations third and seven plus, and obviously that's their key to victory. I think it's foolish to pick against Alabama to, like, lose this game. But Arkansas could potentially – like, for example, I was thinking about this game earlier in the week. I think it's possible this is – I mean, this is Alabama's toughest test of the rest of the way. I think this is tougher than Auburn without Bo Nix. So um, – yeah, I don't, I'm not putting an Alabama on upset alert. But, yeah, I think this could be like a 34-17 game, 34-20 game, which would mean Arkansas acquitted themselves very well. If Arkansas loses this game and then beats Missouri at home, which they should do to end the season, I mean, that's 8-4 and four for Sam Pittman in year two. It's wild. And, look, yeah. they went, what, 3-7 and seven last year, and we applauded that because we, we recognized the culture shift. Um, so you go 8-4, possibility 9-4, and four, your top – you're like 19 to 22 in the final coaches poll. That's amazing. Hey, and you know what? Um, maybe that means that we'll see more programs hire uh, guys who aren't offensive coordinators as head coach, just because you see a guy in Pittman who has reached a, a roster and installed a culture very quick. So I don't know if he's SEC coach of the year. I think we got to give that to Kirby Smart. 
but he'll he might get some votes. He should get some votes. Well, I mean, actually, Josh Heupel is going to win SEC Coach of the Year. Really? Okay. Why? Because yeah. if they go if they go seven and five, I don't know who they finish with. Well, they usually finish with Vandy. Yeah, that's. Okay. I, don't know, I don't know who they finish finish with. I think they have Vandy this week, don't they? Uh, I mean, no, they have South there. Alabama this week. They have South oh, okay. Alabama and then, and then, okay, I got you. Um, yeah, and then Vandy. So, yeah, they'll be seven and five. Seven and five. I don't know how. Got a lot of respect for Heupel in general. Heupel's been a guy who has uh, achieved beyond what people expected for a long time. But I do think that you, you have to vote for Kirby Smart. Let's not overthink this. This team is decimated. Decimated. <laughs> you don't have to preach any more of this to me. I mean, I think coach of the year is the dumbest award ever in the way that people actually vote for it. Mm -hmm. They vote for it based on being wrong three months ago. (laughs) That's right. It's so stupid. Like, okay. You know, but I I am. Yeah. I'm of the mind. What is the job of the coach to win? Who is doing the most? Who's doing the most winning? That's who I give coach of the year to usually. Yeah. I don't vote so, for any of that stuff. Like I don't like. I don't either. I don't vote for anything. But I vote for the Heisman. Do they? Do they vote? Is the Dodd a vote, or the Bear Bryant a vote, or is that just some like Phil Steele and two other dudes picking it? Do you have any idea? I think I think it's a committee. I okay. think there's some kind of committee. Yeah, that committee likes to. Uh, also, the, I think the Dodd is the one that has a preseason watch list for coach of the year. Right. Just stop. who do who do we think who do we think is going to do a better job than than the record? Right. So uh, Kirby Smart is the coach of the year. Please do your job. Kirby Smart also gets very fired up at halftime against uh, Florida. I haven't listened to that yet. Didn't that did that come out today, Wednesday? It came out today. Yeah, it came out. Uh, it was or maybe Tuesday night. Honestly, like yeah, he says a few cuss words, but like there's nothing bad about. Like there's literally nothing bad. Look, and we talked about this last week. I didn't have some huge issue with the Bo Davis video, all right? Um, But the reality is he was calling players MFers, and it was just like this, like, ridiculous rant going after his own players, Mm -hmm. which I don't particularly think is very effective in this day and age with this, you know, generation and all that stuff. And, And it's, you know, there's things you could argue both sides of, but like, there's nothing like Kirby's not going after his own players or anything like that. He's just fired up and he's like getting guys, you know, to basically the theme of it was don't look at the scoreboard. Don't talk to, you know, don't talk trash to Florida's guys. Like if they start talking to you, just walk away or point at the scoreboard or whatever, you know, and like (laughs) total it too. Yeah. They're in, there's a commonality in that they are both expletive laden, but mm-hmm. there is literally no relationship between those two leaked rants. So yeah. anyway, I'm going to wait till I get in line at Starbucks later to play that. <clears throat> I'm going to play that full volume in public. Kirby I think, I, th- I think you'll like it. Um, so Cincinnati is firmly planted at number five in the uh, college football playoff rankings. And, you know, honestly, they're not in terrible position. You know, if Oregon loses a game, uh, the whole Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State thing is going to work itself out. Say Oklahoma State uh, loses, you know, one of the last games. Like I, Cincinnati's probably getting in, I guess, maybe. Um, but they got to beat SMU this week. And honestly, the way Cincinnati has played the last four games, I don't know that. 
I don't know that they are going to beat SMU. SMU's very explosive, and they just hung 55 on UCF. Like, SMU can get things done with the ball. Cincinnati's going to have to be a lot better than they've been to win this game, in my opinion. Yeah, the, the key for Cincinnati, I mean, obviously, every week, I just keep the ball in Desmond Ritter's hands. I mean, just keep the ball in his hands. Last three weeks, he's got like 13, 12, and 15 carries. He had 35 attempts on Saturday. You got to do that. If you're going to run 75 plays, 50-plus got to go through Ritter. I mean, absolutely, on offense. What worries me if I'm SMU, yeah, they dropped 55 last week, but there's been a trend line with Tanner Mordecai, as explosive and as productive as he's been. He's had 10 turnovers. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a walking interception. He's going to turn the ball over. And I think against Cincinnati, you give them a short field, and you turn 14-7 into 21-7 like midway through the second, and all of a sudden they're, you're kind of rolling downhill through the Bearcats. So that worries me if I'm SMU. Clearly toughest game for, for Cincinnati since Notre Dame. Part of me thinks maybe there's a chance that they've been overlooking this team and will get tuned up for the Mustangs because they know what they're about. But uh, to your point, if like the second half against South Florida or all of Tulsa, all of Navy is what they really are, SMU 100% can win this game. And they can win this game like 40 to 26, 40 to 24. I mean, easily. Um, but I think Cincinnati's got more of the tank. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll know a lot more on Saturday night about where they stand and where everybody else is. Michigan State, Ohio State, uh, Michigan's got a game against Maryland that I think they're going to be all right. But uh, everything's coming into focus as we get to the last hey, couple weeks. Un- unless, of the season. unless you want to set aside the games. Per Gary unless you want to set aside, yes. If yes. you want to set aside the games, we will learn nothing from Saturday. Don't, That's your choice. Don't get me started at this point in the podcast on this stupid committee. God dang. What I mean, I, I remember back the f- start of this committee, it was all these stories about Jeff Long and he's bringing his iPad into the gym and he's watching 50 games a week and just can't get enough. And all these teams, you know, every player and every play and every and now and now it's Gary Barta set aside watching the game. Then Michigan's, you know, listen, just say what the truth is, which is. Yeah, head-to-head matters, but, you know, uh, a very close game that Michigan played on the road where they had a little bit of bad luck and a couple questionable calls, if you played that game five more times on a neutral field, we kind of think Michigan would win maybe four of those five, and that's why we've got Michigan ahead of Michigan State. Like, it would be perfectly acceptable to say that. I mean, it would still make people mad, but don't say set aside watching the games. Come on. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's almost like um... – if you thought what questions you were going to get before you spoke, you might be able to formulate responses that make sense. Yeah. I mean, the thing is the college football playoff and the people who run it, they know exactly what questions they're going to get every week. They just don't do a very good job of coming up with answers. That is the truth. All right. That's where we'll leave it for this week. Please subscribe to USA Today Sports Plus. Subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Give us a good rating. Uh, Leave a comment. We certainly appreciate that. In the meantime, have a great end of the week. Enjoy all the games coming up this weekend. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. This has been the College Football Fix Podcast. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. 
This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. 